Good morning, everyone. We'll be getting started in just a few moments. We're allowing people to join in. Folks are starting to come in now. It's good. Hmm. You got a fellow European on there. Oh, great stuff. <laughs> Representing. That's right. <laughs> Although very unfortunately for us these days, whether you qualify us as European anymore is a, an open question. <laughs> <laughs> but let's not bring politics into it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but my Italian accent is better. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, uh, just one more moment, we'll wait and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Okay, well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Great Data Minds. Uh, we got a great event planned here today. Uh, joining me is our guest advisor, Eric Topham. He is CEO and Data Science Director at the Data Analysis Bureau out of the UK. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, thanks for <laughs> thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. It really is. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited about what we're going to chat about today. Um, Absolutely. Looking forward to it. So, a few housekeeping items for everyone. Please uh, use the chat to share your observations uh, with each other, with um, with Eric and myself. Also, use it to ask any questions, and we'll keep an eye on the chat window and. Um, you know, during the course of our dialogue, we'll, we'll stop and take some questions and uh, see if we can get stumped by you all out there. So, so again, welcome, Eric. Um, tell us a little bit about the Data Analysis Bureau. Sure, yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, TDAB is a data science and, um, uh, data science and engineering innovation company. Uh, so we have for the last sort of three to four years specialized in developing uh, bespoke uh, high-end machine learning solutions for other businesses. Uh, we have also established a, a strategic uh, R&D partnership with Imperial College uh, here in London. Um, mm -hmm. So we actually also undertake a, a, a quite a, a large amount of sort of academic uh, research, but sort of very much applied into into industry in terms of how we we uh, 
develop certain machine learning solutions um, in that in that space. Um, and yeah, we're very we're growing wonderfully. Um, you know, we work in a very diverse uh, set of uh, industries. We're not sort of particularly specialised, and we are now sort of uh, starting to expand ourselves. We're sort of going through an exciting funding round and um, expanding ourselves into 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 commoditized uh, ML products. Um, and so it's a, it's a really exciting time. Well, you know, and it seems like a, um, the year 2021, and I don't know if this is a result of the perfect storm of the latent demand that built up throughout 2020 and or the many organizations finding themselves at that tipping point, right, where it's like, holy cow, we have to figure out how to be nimble and agile and change our business models with agility. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of evidence uh, and a lot of research coming out of the likes of McKinsey Research Institute and others that 2021 is going to be the year where machine learning and AI really starts to take hold on a more aggressive pace. Um, and I think a lot of companies are waking up to the potential benefits. But I mean, what's your sense? Are they achieving those benefits? Uh, yeah, I mean, so for sure, I think the, the first the first thing is just to kind of unpack that slightly, which is to say that I think you're absolutely right. That the, the the word on the street, if you like, is that 2021 is the the year, the inflection point that um, you know AI. Well, I'm I'm always a bit cautious with AI, but let's mm -hmm. say machine learning applications uh, really start to to scale, and and I think mm -hmm. that it is fair to say that we're now sort of starting to see an inflection point, if you like, within the uh, the, the data and AI supply chain. Right, there are mm -hmm. enough um, individual organisations creating enough of the components for others to then um, you know build and build and scale if they have the you know the knowledge to do that. That then leads to the second question, which is you know are are organisations now already getting the benefit um, from that that they that they should and mm -hmm. I think that arguably the answer is for the vast majority um, still no so um, mm -hmm. partially I think that's down to the fact that some of these tools that are appearing are still new um, some of it is that just the entire domain is still new to the vast majority of you know potential um, adopters and, and users but you're right to mention some of that that research um, there was something that I was reading not so long ago from Accenture that um, some research that tried to quantify what the gap was if you like between those that are sort of playing with machine learning projects and those that mm -hmm. are successfully um, managing to scale them and it's it's, it's relatively shocking really I mean um, the, the return on investments are sort of less than 30 percent for those that are sort of playing and carrying out a lot of investigative you know, proof of concept mm -hmm. type projects and for those that are successfully scaling you're seeing sort of 86 percent um, you know, plus depending on the industry um, in terms of that, that ROI and I, I think they even managed to kind of uh, quantify that on average as a sort of 110 million dollar um, you know gap uh, mm -hmm. between those scalers and those um, you know those those uh, you know, those sort of still just doing proof of proof of concept, not the dabblers. Anything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so definitely there is some worth out there. At least the researchers are telling us that, and they are backing it up with a lot of evidence-based research. Um, a lot of surveys I've been seeing. Um, so you mentioned POC. So what, what are we talking about here with the POC cycle? Right? And, yeah. and you know, 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, so, so proof, of con- proof of concepts. Um, and I think you know, we, we need to, again, to be a little bit careful. Proof of concepts mean a lot of things to a lot of people. To some people, that those are very sort of limited technical spikes where we're trying to de-risk a project before we undertake a full project. In mm-hmm. other cases, quite literally, we're trying to prove a concept, you know, that something can be achieved with, you know, the, the tools and material that we, that we have at hand. So from my perspective, proof of concepts, um, it does really depend, you know, on, on the project, uh, in some cases where we're doing a little bit more of an applied build, it might be those technical spikes. And that's not really the case that I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking of here when I talk about the, the proof of concept cycle. It's those kind of more exploratory pieces that um, are there to try and understand whether something is actually feasible um, in the first place. And mm-hmm. you, you see this a lot, these kind of um, sort of, re- you know, um, reduced scope projects um, that are sort of um, carried out on a, uh, on a sort of a bit of a whim and uh, are, are there to try and, you know, explore whether um, something is in the longer term going to be uh, achievable. And the, the, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, it can be a powerful thing because if it's successful, it really can um, drive a lot of buy-in from your stakeholders around, you know, the fact that it is worth investing in this idea that somebody's had uh, that may then have, uh, you know, return on investment for the business. The flip side is that if it fails, almost invariably that's viewed, particularly by non-technical stakeholders, as being a failure that indicates that something is absolutely not possible mm-hmm. rather than understanding it in the sense of you know, here's what we learned from this failure mm-hmm. and therefore we're more likely to succeed in a second step. So when we talk about this proof of concept cycle, what I've seen a lot, uh, both in other organizations where I've worked and with customers, is um, th- this inability to get out of doing one sort of proof of concept after the other and not sort of progressing uh, the project up those technology readiness um, mm-hmm. levels um, and, and and that's what we mean by you know that, that kind of you know failure in the eyes of the stakeholder that then returns you back to kind of step one in that snakes and ladders game of then mm-hmm. having to come up with a new idea for a new project and trying trying something else rather than managing to get yourself out of that cycle and you know progressing the idea and, and eventually you know developing a scalable scalable solution into production yeah. so i'm sensing that uh, you know, there's the risk of not being able to escape the poc cycle yeah exactly is there an approach around that or what well i I, yeah there are i guess a a number of approaches it's a it's a a, a multi-pronged uh solution i think so Mm -hmm. uh, some of it is going to be you know technical in terms of how you um how you actually go about executing that proof of concept um uh, and about how you sort of try to not overreach some of it of course is going to be how you about how you do your your stakeholder management and how you achieve uh, buy-in but I think mm-hmm. that one of the, the key things that I see time and again is is people trying to overreach in their proof of concept mm-hmm. particularly sort of m- less mature teams that um, are going to have an idea don't actually really explicitly know how to solve it go and do a bit of research find themselves on you know towards data science you know, medium some really good um, articles but kind of extrapolate one very complex solution to a problem into being the solution that they should they should try so to really simplify that you quite often see cases where uh, people have let, let's take survival analysis as a problem right i want to do a time to event prediction about the failure of a, um, a part in a manufacturing machine and i've seen this a, a couple of times actually where a team has automatically jumped to the idea that what they need to use are recurrent neural networks with some you know some funky filters in front of them kalman filters 
um, and they're going to they're going to model complex probability distributions, only to find that the data they've got isn't really suitable. It's not in sufficient, um, you know, not in sufficient volume. They don't have enough events, you know, so on and so forth. When in fact, a much more simple solution, a much more traditional, perhaps less glamorous solution like a Cox proportional hazards model, might have actually worked very nicely. And while it wouldn't be the ultimate end solution that you might develop, it would achieve what it's meant to achieve, which is to, on the one hand, get that buy-in from your, your stakeholders, and mm -hmm. two, teach you a bit about what's likely to work, what's not likely to work, and how you might best iterate the model that you develop as you sort of progress the, progress the project. Yep. So a couple of things are hitting me. Um, as we've talked earlier, we're, we're very much proponents of taking a lean, agile approach to your analytics program. And part of that is buying into the lean side of the house where continuous quest for improvement, continuous quest for, to innovate and explore, um, which I find to be incredibly valuable because we want to vet these hypotheses out as quickly as possible, right? Um, and and you touched on another thing that I've seen too, where we head down the road and we start making some significant investment in some of these models only only to find we don't have entitlement to the necessary data to feed you know feed and care and nurture and train these models, um, and so. Why, why do so many models seem to perform really well in development and then they belly over in, in production? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so this is obviously one of the kind of the fundamental uh, troubles that people have, particularly when they're new to, to data science projects. And, and I think a lot of the time when you see this complaint, um, it, there's an element here of a, a lack of sometimes maturity and experience from the teams that, that suffer this, where what they haven't fully understood and appreciated is that uh, machine learning models learn distributions fundamentally, right? And um, uh, the systems that capture data are capturing that data as information about the world that we observe around us, and the world doesn't remain in one static state. So if you develop a machine learning model based off some historical sample of data, you're effectively using a snapshot of the world as it was um, at that time when that data was collected. And so if you train a model, I'm very much sort of talking about supervised machine learning here mm -hmm. to, to a large degree, but you can sort of extrapolate from here. Um, if, you, if you train that model on that, um, that data set that is, a, if you like, a snapshot of the world at that particular point in time, that model may be perfectly valid uh, for that uh, for that historical set, but if the world, if you like, has moved on, to use layman's terms, um, mm -hmm. and the distributions that exist in the data that is then captured in your live production stream are different, then your your model um, is is no longer um, it's maladapted now for the distributions that are in that live data set, and so you'll get spurious inferences um, out from the model when you test it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. against your test set. So, so that kind of fundamental understanding about concept drift um, in, in, um, in live production data streams um, is, is key. And then what that leads you to understand is that in fact, training and testing models in development is, is just a, a, a small, to some degree, almost simple part of the process. In fact, there's an enormous amount of overhead that happens in terms of the engineering that's required to actually implement those models into production, uh, to maintain them, you know, develop them, monitor them, and, and act, you know, manage them as, a, as an active, you know, almost a live uh, living thing, right? And, mm -hmm. and that's, I think, a step that's very, very often missed by 
you know, teams that are new to the, you know, the data science and engineering in game. And since most people are new to it, it's not surprising that lots of people report um, that, um, you know, that they have issues. And I think that it's, this is a kind of a fundamental problem with the current sort of trend in machine learning, particularly when we look at deep learning, which is that, you know, these models, while being very complex, are also very febrile, if you like, you know, it doesn't take a lot to actually, um, you know, upset them. I mean, for those who know about adversarial attacks and the such like, you'll know that there are some pretty famous cases that people have demonstrated where you can fool image classifiers into thinking that a panda is now a, you know, um, a, a dog or something, right? You know, and even mm -hmm. that is not a big, big difference. So, so, so there's a kind of a more fundamental problem to, I think, you know, machine learning architectures and the, you know, the, the, the sort of theoretical developments about how we, we build those. But there's, I think, a more practical aspect, which is that there's a certain maturity that people need to acquire about how you actually manage these past the point of, of deployment in order for them to be robust and therefore for them to you know, return value to mm. Yeah, so um, there's this, this concept or, or, yeah, I'll call it a concept for lack of a better term. Um, when I'm training and then testing my, my models with a historical data set, there, there's a need for the awareness that that data has an has an ingrained bias in it. Yeah, and we and, I, and we have to yeah. be intentionally aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the the trouble is that a lot of the time when you sort of, you know, if you're starting out in data science, you go and read about how, you, you know, train, test and validate your models. Um, I think that's, you know, what you read most of the time is just the bare, the bare minimum. And in fact, mm -hmm. you know, we can really beef up the, you know, the test harnesses that we use at the, the end of, um, you know, the end of that process. And we can, you know, do much more in terms of sensitivity testing uh, and the such like to try and understand, you know, how that the performance of that model is likely to vary if we get you know disturbances within the um you know within the within the production feed mm -hmm. and, and you know i think people get fixated with the idea that if they achieve you know 82 percent um you know uh, uh validation uh, sorry test accuracy on their holdout set that they should expect to always see that exact number in terms of you know, the accuracy percentage on their production set but the reality is that that number is likely to vary you know somewhat over time and so there's just kind of these you know appreciations that, that that people need to kind of build into their processes and, and thinking yes and you mentioned when i'm going to production uh, the 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 mechanics around the model itself there's there's mechanisms on the sensing you mentioned telemetry you mentioned monitoring um yeah. can you can you expand a little bit on what that final leg ecosystem is because my sense is people are missing out missing that point yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so there's 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 a number of, of things, and really, actually, none of this is sort of too much of a mystery if you've sort of been around, you know, the DevOps world at all, and and you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment processes and tooling. So, you know, a, a key part your your pipelines are going to be orchestration tools. So for instance, um, you know, Azure Data Factory in, in, in with Microsoft, um, and so there's going to be some orchestration there. You know, about whether you're whether you're running sort of streaming or batch jobs with your data that's going. To to the to the production model um, you've then actually got obviously your model monitoring uh, tooling so um, there are now sort of some very nice tools that are coming out um, to uh, do that um, you know distribution monitoring in the live uh, feed you know looking for for concept drift um, mm -hmm. there are also some uh, mechanisms that you can build 
to actually um, you know, use some machine learning itself to detect whether the distributions in the, uh, in the production feed are actually different uh, to what you had in the, in the historical data. So effectively building uh, an anomaly detection pipeline to monitor the production uh, pipeline. And so from that, you can either, you know, put on um, uh, sort of manual monitoring tools, if you like, so feed some of that to some dashboards so that people that are you know, doing that support can actually, you know, quite literally see the pipeline themselves or of course you can build you know automated um, processes uh, into that and then the other the key thing of course is to have kind of really um, you know tight CICD processes for doing uh, new releases to production of new models that you may um, retrain and you often see a lot of the time that you know people just go about this by kind of just retraining their model periodically but mm -hmm. that seems to be a, you know, a somewhat you know um, uh, uh, brute force uh, approach. You know that may not be necessary. You know if fundamentally the distributions in in the data, you know, mm -hmm. hasn't varied, and therefore there's no justification for actually retraining your model on a fresh uh, historical um, period. But that is one approach that that, that can mm -hmm. be taken, or you okay. can do it, of course, based on some you know, some you know criteria um, from within the data. Yeah. yeah so, so so some kind of triggers, and and the action I'm taking then is, hey, I need to potentially do a challenger model to the existing one or yeah of course yeah so so i guess yeah from from a from a, a sort of a life cycle perspective yeah you would expect to have um either an automated or manual uh, retraining process and this really kind of depends i think on the maturity of the pipeline that you've deployed so early days mm -hmm. for the most part what you know what we would recommend and see is that that's actually a sort of data scientist led uh, manual uh, process of effectively you know, as your production pipeline is running uh, doing some you know some some retraining and uh, you know validation and testing and then mm -hmm. if you find you know that according to whatever test criteria you put in place that you have a, a model that you deem to be you know uh, deployable then you would replace that but with time um, it would be normal that you actually look to set that up as a you know as a an automated process where you have some automated retraining on those triggers of an ensemble of models for instance that if you exceed some criteria of performance, mm -hmm. get automatically um, or semi-automatically deployed. Yeah, for sure. I got you. Okay. So in, in your uh, opening, um, when, when you uh, shared uh, with us what the Data Analysis Bureau is about, uh, you mentioned that you're doing application and you're doing research. Um, are some companies having a fundamental issue in confusing the application data science versus research data science? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so this, I think, um, and, and I think this is, people are, coming, are starting to wake up to this, you know, thankfully, but I think for a period there was, yeah, well, firstly, people got really excited about data scientists and, and didn't really think about the engineering <laughs> side of things. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and the second thing is that they equated, you know, data scientist to needing, um, you know, I don't know, uh, a PhD in, in quantum physics to mm -hmm. come and work for them when well, their main their main business problem was customer churn right like it, and and it's just it's just unnecessary and 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 there's a couple of issues to that so um if nothing else the poor old quantum physicist is probably going to get bored after a period of time and i think it is worth noting that um actually there's a very high rate of churn amongst data scientists you know leaving that've come out of academia and then uh, taking data scientist roles and then leaving again and i mm. think some of that comes down to expectation 
um, it, it's also a problem for the business because you know the business has got some buy-in to fund you know these roles and then you know they don't necessarily see the output that they expect and most of the time that's because you know the data that they actually have is not in a state that it's going mm. to be particularly useful for data scientists to make something um, you know something of and and, and the second thing is that there's two really different set of skills here. There's the, you know, the hardcore research data scientist who's suited to understanding the theory and then, you know, creating novel, um, you know, algorithmic um, architectures. And then there's your applied scientist who has a more of an understanding in the, the domain knowledge of the, the industry that they're in, how mm -hmm. those processes work, you know, the attributes of the data, and then has a toolkit, if you like, at their disposal. Um, of algorithms and you know, other tools where they can, you know, combine those, if you like, based upon their domain knowledge to solve actual uh, business problems. And, and mm -hmm. I think this has been, a, you know, that's what most people need. And for a while where people have just been, you know, going out and hiring, um, you know, sort of very academic uh, data scientists. And so depending exactly on what you're, you're doing, the purpose of your business, the function of your business that you're, you're hiring for, you're going to need rather more, one of those things, you know, than, than the other. Yeah, and there's a lot of platforms that are coming out, especially this past year. I saw this like top top 21 startups to keep an eye on. And mm -hmm. there was a lot of focus in, in the machine learning space around um, deploying low code or no code kind of environments to enable mm -hmm. data science, um, which I'm kind of excited about that because I'm, I'm a proponent of self-service analytics to get the scale. Um, yeah. you know, to vet those hypotheses and all that. Um, but is there still a place and a need for the, for that deeper quantum physics oriented type, type of research to be going on? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things, actually. I'll just un unpack that one again. So th th there clearly is a place for the deep research uh, scientist, you know, um, companies that undertake, you know, proper R&D that want to embed, you know, complex machine learning solutions into their products quite clearly need need that 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 capability mm -hmm. if we look at the sort of the more applied side um when we I, I, you know when we talk about those low code tools I, i'll be honest I, i'm still myself a little nervous about this sometimes because mm -hmm. while that's a fantastic idea and you know so there's some great tools that can kind of really accelerate um, uh, you know, people, I think that when you have these kind of, you know, either auto ML tools or those low code tools, there's a loss of ability to kind of fundamentally, um, you know, validate what you're, you're doing. And mm. what we see is that, you know, data science, a lot of the time still takes an awful lot of human intuition and expertise around, uh, around the data. And, you know, going back to that question about why do some models fail in production? I think a lot of the time it's because something has been missed about the properties of the data that you're, you know, you're working with that, mm -hmm. you know, if you don't have a, a, an ability to dig deep, you don't need to always dig deep, but to dig deep, mm -hmm. then you're going to miss that. And so, you know, I think that uh, some of the best consultants that we have at DDAB, you know, have come from an academic background, but they've understood how to apply themselves in that more kind of applied scientist role rather mm -hmm. than, you know, wanting to live in that, you know, research scientist yep. role. So there's a role for both. Um, it's just knowing when to have each one and how they're best suited and how to, you know, best point them in the, in the right direction. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You mentioned, um, um, some data scientists will get frustrated, you know, the, the more highly skilled, sure, yeah. um, uh, because the, the, 
the there's just no curated data for them, right? They, they yeah. can't get their arms around the information that they need. I was at a, a university, this is several years ago, and I was asking them, where's their value as an, as an enterprise? And they were a research facility, medical research facility, and they were a university. And I was trying to get out of them whether it's the donors, um, the donations from the, the alumni, is it the, uh, 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 the student, uh, Gosh, what's sort of tu- tuition? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, right. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, is it the yeah. tuition fees? Um, yeah. I said, where's the value? They said, our value is in our curated data because we are getting the best analytic t- uh, talent in the country coming to us because I have curated data. And that kind of leads me to, you know, a lot of companies are hearing about this data engineering concept and whatnot, but where does that fit in in machine learning? Yeah, well, I think it's it's actually uh, critical, you know, and this is the thing, like I say, that, that people have had their hiring almost the wrong way around, you know, everyone got excited about data scientists, whereas what they actually really needed were data engineers. So, so data engineers, very broadly speaking, serve two functions, right? They build, um, you know, the, the, uh, the infrastructure and what we call machine learning pipelines that, um, you know, take the data and do the necessary pre-processing transformations, cleaning, et cetera, et cetera, to get it to a state. Firstly, for some data scientists to start to develop some, some models. So that would be your, mm-hmm. you know, your training pipeline that they're going to build mm-hmm. and they're going to work sort of hand in hand with the data scientist to you know, get that data into a, an optimal state for training um, you know, models and, and testing um, and validating them. And then the second step, which, ev- which a lot of the time, even when people do realize they need data engineers forget about is that second step around putting things into production. So there comes a point where, you know, the data scientist has done their bit, they've done their, their, their model uh, development cycle, they've done their deep dives around, you know, validation and such like, they're happy, they've got a model that's good for production, it now needs to go into production. And so the data engineers are there to build those production pipelines to ensure that the data that's arriving, you know, to the model is robust, that it you know, arrives in the same form as it was trained on, and that we have all of that tooling uh, that you mentioned previously, you know, for doing the monitoring and the CICD processes are all in place. Mm-hmm. So in fact, if you think about the overhead in terms of building a machine learning driven um, solution, um, actually, the vast majority of the work is, you know, attributed, we would probably say to, you know, to the to the data engineers, plus a bit of, you know, architecture work mm-hmm. as well. And, in, you know, the data scientist, while they do a very difficult job in terms of, um, you know, in terms of the, the total contribution to that whole solution, it's actually just a very small very small part. So, you know, these days when people say to me, you know, I've I've got a business and I'm thinking of hiring a data scientist, I say, whatever you do, don't, you know, hire a data engineer first, Mm -hmm. get get your real estate, you know, in shape, you know, get the infrastructure in place, prepare the data, because otherwise all you're going to do is waste you know, um, you know, waste uh, a data scientist's salary, and 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 also to some degree, their you know the the credit that you hold with them in terms of their frustration. And you know, I've seen it. I've been to you know, before running TDAB jobs myself, where I arrived as a data scientist, and you you find that what you've got to work with is not what you were promised. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and I've had I've had you know plenty of friends that similarly got hired in as a, you know the first data scientist, um, you know, to an apparently innovative you know startup or whatever, and they get there and you know, everything's a shambles. And, and what was really needed was a couple of really good engineers first to get everything in place so that then the data scientists can add value, you know, later. Yep. And, and a lot of, you know, a large, lot of large enterprises and small enterprises, medium size as well, um, 
have enterprise data warehouses of some sort mm. or data lakes or whatever. Give it, give whatever it a name, right? right? So, yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm an old school guy. Yeah, data yeah. warehouse works for me. I'm a data architect, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to spend a lot of time driving out the specifications for getting the data organized fit for purpose for analytics. Um, and I, and I thought I did a pretty darn good job, but then data science workloads come along and there's a, another whole leg of feature extraction or feature engineering going on. Um, sure. yeah. so I guess we're missing the mark maybe, um, or we need to have a little bit more knowledge and awareness of what a data scientist really needs when I'm, designing and populating historical data into the data warehouse because why is all this additional feature engineering having to take place yeah for sure so so I mean, just very specifically around the question of, of feature engineering the, the idea of course is that um while we may have an initial set of you know raw features if you like that with with which we hope that there is some signal between perhaps a target variable and um and some explanatory variables um, in fact, what we know is that a lot of the time by uh, combining, if you like, some of those, uh, some of those features, you know, doing some transformations to them, um, applying some functions to them, uh, we can actually create features that are more, um, you know, informationally salient, if you like, uh, you know, convey more predictive power, um, explain more variants, you know, however you, whichever sort of world you come from, you know, mm -hmm. you know, how you want to present that, um, uh, you know, for, for a model that you're, you're developing. It might also be that if you're in the game of, you know, building, um, you know, explainable uh, machine learning models, then you're interested in creating variables that in, you know, not only convey signal, but, you know, are meaningful to the person that's actually, you know, looking at the output of the, you know, the interpretations of, of local uh, predictions. Mm -hmm. So, so that's kind of the rationale for, for doing it as to the whole kind of, you know, well, it adds a whole layer of complexity. I do sometimes think that there's um, almost like a little bit of, you know, relabeling re that goes on that, that causes confusion. So when we, you see a, a quite a lot of chatter at the moment about, you know, feature stores. I think to some, to a large degree, feature stores is a bit of, bit of relabeling of, of, you know, things that we would be familiar with, with, you know, data warehousing. Um, uh -huh. and, and, and we're really just kind of, you know, putting somewhere convenient in a convenient format, the things that data scientists really want to work with out of the box, you know, and, and, and doing that perhaps in a scalable way so that as we, you know, move from one, one development project to the next, we still have the same store full of features that we can go and pick from without having to rebuild you know, mm -hmm. pipelines. And I think that's yep. the really key thing, a really core concept here when it comes to data science and development is that this idea of machine learning pipelines where we can build, um, you know, reproducible, robust uh, units within a pipeline, which we then don't have to replicate a second time when we create a new pipeline. So if mm -hmm. I have, you know, two pipelines that are going to do complementary things in terms of their uh, prediction, you know, maybe I'm, I'll use the example earlier, you know, time to event prediction for a, um, 
uh, critical failure in a machine, and I might also have an anomaly detection pipeline. I don't need to repeat those two. I don't need to copy those two pipelines twice. I can retain the same upstream elements and mm -hmm. then just, you know, um, fork, if you like, the, the, the pipeline into those two, um, those two streams, the anomaly yeah, detection. And yeah, and we might take different features. into. So, so this, I think, is really key, is this kind of idea of reproducible working, um, you know, ro robust pipelines, and and making them you know more scalable by design and, and of course now you know containerization and and, and the such like is mm -hmm. it sort of is now progressing you know progressing that further yeah and i'm seeing data apps extending itself um yep. you know, and yeah. data apps automation is is a natural extension to handle that last leg where i'm doing yep. the feature engineering and feature store and all that um and it's funny i'm glad you mentioned the feature store thing because that was one of the startups um, that mm -hmm. is out there. They, they built an automated feature store pipeline yep. tool. <laughs> yeah. So um, this is what I mean about the, you know, the, the, the kind of the inflection point in, in that sort of data and AI supply chain, right? Like you have, you have people that are, you know, specializing in trying to develop the best possible solution for a part of, you know, a part of the pipeline. And mm -hmm. I think that's, what's kind of exciting is that, you know, you, all, you've got all these people putting all of this effort into developing and optimizing these pipeline elements. And so that makes it, you know, a much more scalable thing for other people to come along and then adopt those individual components, find the, one, find the ones that are optimal for their use case, combine mm -hmm. them, you know, combine them together. And that's yeah. something that, you know, TDAB, that's our, you know, kind of our whole emerging strategy is to get people to deploy faster by building pre-configured, you know, optimized pipelines that people mm -hmm. can deploy in, you know, a sprint or two rather than, you know, three or four months of right. bespoke building. Yeah, exactly. mm -hmm. So we got a question in from Francesco. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that it's possible to prepare data for both the business users and the data scientists all in one shared environment, universally valid for everyone? Um, he, he offered his answer. I want to hear yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So, so I, I think it's one of those questions, though, that you've got to you've got to caveat a little bit. So, um, it, I think it really depends on on the the particular you know use case in terms of the organization. You know what it does, the maturity level of you know the the mm -hmm. two sets of of end users. Um, I think that uh, quite clearly, if uh, the, the data science workflow is tailored towards serving, shall we say, sort of you know predictive. Um, uh, sort of predictive business intelligence insights is kind of what I would call it. Then I think that there we should be we should be striving for a degree of commonality because to a large degree there's going to be a prerogative to have models that are you know well explainable you know interpretable um, by nature and and that you know should be un, you know the outputs of which should be understandable and therefore the features for instance that we put into them should you know have some you know if you like sort of tangible uh, real world um, mm -hmm. relevance. So so trying to create, um, you know, an infrastructure where, you know, both can be served because ultimately that, you know, machine learning pipeline may well actually be plugging into a business intelligence pipeline anyway, makes sense. But in other cases where, you know, the application is going to be somewhat more abstract. So where we might be building sort of, you know, deep learning pipelines for, you know, like I say, in sort of industrial IoT, where anyway, the data that's being used is fairly abstracted already, mm -hmm. then it may be more appropriate and where we get you know, differences in the velocities um, of, of insight that we're looking for. So we might be looking for extremely high velocities 
case um, for the, the actual sort of prediction pipelines that are connecting mm -hmm. and automating with machines, but we might be looking at much lower velocities for sort of more reporting data. And so in, mm -hmm. in that instance, we're clearly going to need to, you know, to, to segregate the architecture a little bit more. Right. Now, so sounds like your answer is yes, and you gave us a lot of good it depends to ponder. Um, I'm picking up too that we at least need to be aware that there's this other stream of data being used and being you know being created and used for machine learning, and we have to be aware that maybe there's business value in there as well. Uh, yeah, for sure. I strive for it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the, the key challenge, you know, about having all, all the data for everyone in one place is that ultimately, there's, a, you know, to make data useful for machine learning, there's quite a lot of processing that goes on you know, most of the time mm -hmm. to it. And, and yeah. that may end, that may mean that we land up with data that is, you know, abstracted away from something that's in any way meaningful to, mm. you know, a, a human, a human end user. And so, you know that that's where the, the 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 challenge comes in, and so the architecting of these systems really, in the end, has to be driven, if you like, by the you know by the end user requirements, and and that's kind of another sort of critical thing that people don't think about enough. You know, they build mm -hmm. their systems, but without actually thinking to themselves, well, who's going to you know who's going to use this, and what implications does that have for the you know for the design? Mm -hmm. Well, that that kind of hints to me that there might be some wider considerations that companies are missing when they're planning for and designing machine learning driven systems. What are some of those wider considerations? Yeah. So there's, there's a few, and this is kind of more of a, I guess, like a sort of a business, um, your business processes question. So, so one of them is, you know, how is this system going to fit into our existing business processes? And if mm -hmm. it doesn't, how are you going to change that business process? Mm. And you do, very strangely run into you know people that come to you and say hey i want to build you know i've you know i need to do machine learning i need to be more innovative you know so on and so forth and say okay we'll build this but you're going to need to change this business process oh well i, I can't possibly Whoa. do that <laughs> you think well <laughs> okay <laughs> you know i thought you wanted to be innovative um, so, so, so that's that that's one that's kind of a one key bit and so to go with that is then you know how do you people often don't think about how do you evidence the impact right mm -hmm. you know, we started out talking about like you know rois and this kind of thing but that, those are incredibly difficult things to actually put your finger on and for certain say you know it's this you know technology that we've deployed that is responsible in its entirety for this you know for this impact so mm -hmm. K so very early on kpiing um you know projects and you know functions to the business that are going to be you know impacted by these systems mm -hmm. and then the third one that links the business process is that what everyone always forgets um is that for the most part, there's always a human involved somewhere mm -hmm. in all of this. And um, while everyone likes to think of Terminator and super robots and I, you know, God knows what else, in the end, as they are at the moment, machine learning systems are relatively febrile. And if a, if a human doesn't want to use it or if a human wants to break it, they will do so very, very easily. And mm -hmm. so the thing that gets overlooked massively is actually engaging with the people who are going to be, like I say, the end users. And mm -hmm. the problem that happens is that because these are new technology projects, very often the people that commission them are at the top of the organization, but the people that are going to land up having to use it are right at the bottom. So we've seen this you know, with TDAB a number of times, but one of the sort of the most famous ones for me was um, one of our customers is the, the world's um, largest um, uh, can manufacturer, for, a packaging manufacturer. 
and uh, we built and designed um, uh, a, a number of um, uh, pipelines for trying to reduce the, the the amount of spoilage that was running within their uh, occurring within their production plants and mm -hmm. we achieved some really nice accuracies and you know it was just blatantly obvious that if you deployed this stuff um, it would make sense but one of the key mm -hmm. insights that seems so simple was that perhaps running machines at full speed isn't actually you know, uh, in the long run, the most optimal strategy for your, you know, your overall productivity. And so, uh, you know, after tens of thousands of pounds of being spent, there was a stakeholder meeting where, you know, they finally agreed that it would be a good idea to bring in some of the operators from the factory floor to get their view on how such a system would, would fit in. And mm -hmm. the immediate reaction was, um, you know, <laughs> well, we're not incentivized to do anything other than run the machines at full speed. So, you know, we probably wouldn't actually, you know, adopt this system very well. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. there, hadn't, there hadn't been an appreciation from the customer, despite us kind of trying to encourage them that right from the beginning, they needed to go and, you know, engage with the, you know, engage with the end user and, you know, do some, you know, we needed to do some, you know, some design thinking that took into account not mm -hmm. just kind of the technical solution for how do you make this prediction ultimately very accurately, but, but how is that going to be interacted with and how is it going to be, you know, adopted by the end user? Because if they don't, mm -hmm. if they don't want to use it, they just won't use it and you won't see any impact, you know, right. gotcha. simple as, simple as I, that. I love the, uh, the, the reference to design thinking, um, very much a proponent of that as well. Um, as well as, documenting uh, with well-conceived behavioral stories because yeah. I'm trying to understand what is the behavior I'm going to influence? How am I going to influence it? How is that going to get evidenced? I, I loved it that you brought yeah. that up. So thank you. Well, well, um, the other way to, to think about it, I think, is that, you know, we hear all about how sort of AI is going to be, you know, part of the workforce of the future. And, mm -hmm. you know, in any company, if somebody doesn't, you know, if one of the, you know, one of the employees is disliked by everyone else, then mm -hmm. it's not going to make for a great working environment. And that, that employee is not going to succeed and, and everyone else is going to, so it's a very similar thing. You know, if, if, if you know, these systems are going to augment, if you like, you know, human capability in the workplace, mm -hmm. then they need to be adopted and therefore designed for, you know, the people that are going to actually, you know, interact with them and use them. Yeah. Julie will be happy to hear that. That's the humans. <laughs> That's always been the, the foundation of our practices. Make sure we're taking care of the human care and nurture, right? Yeah, um, sure. Customer centricity, those are mm -hmm. things. So you mentioned a little bit, a, a lot of good business operationalization and adoption considerations. How about some of the, any, any key advice around technical considerations and practicalities of, of deployment? Yeah, so I think the, you know, that um, there's just a few like really basic things that you see just don't, you know, not not happening um, sometimes. So, you know, version control, please, you know, use use pro proper version control, you know, use good CICD processes, you know, use use best practice, you know, do do code reviews. Um, I think that the other thing is really kind of, you know, a lot of success comes in the front part of the project. So, you know, um, not skimping on kind of some of that really boring stuff around, you know, kind of deep diving the data, really trying to understand, you know, its properties, the distributions in it, you know, um, mm -hmm. the, the, the quality for, um, you know, for what it's, you know, its intended purpose. And I, I think also, you know, 
all effort to try and um, you know spike some of those technical issues um, early on uh, are very valuable but I think the key thing is to in order to be successful in the long run we need to not be sort of scared of you know deploying simple solutions very quickly and then iterating upon those as we as we as we learn but mm-hmm. I think it's a combination of the two it's you know putting those you know the tools that we've already talked about in place early on along with those best practices but then looking to kind of you know deploy simple things that are more likely to work you know right out the gate mm-hmm. than, you know, than, than try and you know jump to those more complex uh, okay. solutions so it's not a highly technical answer but i think mm-hmm. to try and like you know pin a very specific um you know technical point uh mm. it would be not as useful as i think sort of laying out some general principles for mm. uh, people to adopt gotcha i've got a question from our old friend bill lay um he's asking where if anywhere does model understandability come into play in the deployment strategy yeah so well i i actually comes before i would say model deployment um mm-hmm. so w- good practice would be to actually try and you know um interpret your your model and the predictions that it's you know both at a global level and at a local level so that the individual predictions that it's it's producing and you want to do that because before we actually ever deploy anything we want to we want to know you know why it's behaving the way it is you know any biases it has in it um you know so on and so forth so so actually i'd say it sort of comes before that Mm -hmm. then once you go you look at the production side i think to a degree you know we're interested in in the use case and of course we've got to be conscientious of the you know the type of algorithm um, that we might be be using so i think one of the for me the key divisions is as soon as i see a project that is about you know um, if you like business insight and business process there's immediately uh, a need there to try and favor um, you know explainable uh, explainable models and to build into the pipeline some of that you know the, uh, the production pipeline some of that explainability because mm-hmm. for instance simply knowing that you that a customer will churn in you know x number of days is great but knowing the reason why the you know, the model is flagging them as a churn risk is 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 even more powerful because then you can do something um about it mm-hmm. i think i think it is interesting that kind of machine learning sort of has has traditionally i think it would be fair to say sort of focused intently on you know predictive accuracy um and Whereas statisticians traditionally have been a little bit more enamoured with the idea of, you know, inference, causal inference. And so there's now kind of this kind of, you can sort of see it coming now, this sort of looping back round in the machine learning world to the idea that we actually, we, we don't just care about, um, you know, our predictive accuracy. We actually care about, you know, why the model is, you know, predicting what it is. And mm-hmm. in some instances, you might even argue that a few percentage points less in terms of you know uh, predictive performance might be a good trade-off for a model that is more interpretable because you can actually you know have a lot more insight and and a lot more you know certainty in terms of you know how the model's behaving and so forth Mm -hmm. um, from that so i think there absolutely is a place for it there's clearly places where it's going to be more difficult you know again if you're using you know uh, uh, sort of some of those uh, sort of more black boxed deep learning architectures, but even there, there's you know there's starting to now be a variety of approaches to try and you know unpack you know unpack those and, and get an understanding of mm-hmm. why they're they're working the way they where they are. Counterfactual explanations being a very good very good one. Mm-hmm. Is that the concept of explainable AI that I've been seeing? 
out there? Yeah. So yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. very very broadly broadly yeah. speaking, yeah. That yeah. there's a that there's there's a bit of difference between interpretable and explainable, but but yeah. Mm-hmm. But but I think that, that some of the really interesting stuff is is you know in in the addressing of the issue with you know neural networks that traditionally everyone likes to think of as being you know less explainable but mm-hmm. actually there are some interpret- interpretability methods for instance um uh, counterfactual explanations which not only kind of help solve that but actually make themselves very pliable so if you take counterfactual explanations where effectively what we do is try and understand how the prediction of a model changes given some variance to to the input very broadly mm-hmm. speaking that's actually very powerful because um, you know it gives us you know a, a method out of the box for effectively doing sort of you know what if scenarioing rather than you know as well as sorry you know understanding how the model behaves based on you know various alternatives in terms of in terms of input. So that's mm-hmm. you know that's a, that's quite an exciting exciting space. Is there a, are you aware of any literature out there around? Uh, yeah, so so Microsoft actually have a very nice package that's come out that's designed to sit on top of um, TensorFlow uh, uh, developed models are called uh, called Dice. Um, so I would I would highly recommend. There's a there's a really nice repo. Uh, there are some more sort of layman's articles associated to that, and there's a, a couple of research papers from uh, Microsoft Research that that are worth uh, worth looking at. It's awesome. But you, you have just filled my head with knowledge today, Eric. Um, in a sentence, what's your key takeaway from for everyone that to uh, walk away with? Yeah, pro- pro- it's difficult because I normally have sort of like sort of four or five takeaways on this. But mm-hmm. I, would, I would say, I would say, pro- you know, pro- prepare well, iterate fast, you know, accept, you know, accept or fail. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the sort of the three three things in a very poor grammatical sentence. <laughs> yeah, you know. It, we got to help. We got to help the industry change that, that dialogue a little bit. It, it's not failing fast. This is about learning. It's continuous learning. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I agree with you. Um, well, Eric Topham from the Data Analysis Bureau. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very incredible, much. Mike. Incredible, incredible knowledge. Pleasure. Brilliant. Yeah. So everybody, thank you for joining. Um, visit our events page. We have a. Um, a session coming up where I'm interviewing the chief data officer from Microsoft to hear about Microsoft's data strategy. And then our path to modern analytics workshop is, is coming up in May as well. So please uh, check out our events page. We've got a lot of good, exciting stuff coming. Eric Toppen, thank you, Thanks sir. Thank you very much, Mike. Yeah, you have a beautiful pleasure. day. All right. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye, Thanks everybody. Everyone. Thank you.